Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Take your Bibles and open up to Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is where we have been and where we are going to be. And um, one of the neat things about Scripture is that it all ties and connects together. And so um, my prayer is that even though some of you may go, aren't we going to... uh, shift for a couple of weeks here and do something focused on Palm Sunday and Easter, I'm going to tell you this is all fit together and you're going to see exactly how this series meshes right with these seasons that we celebrate. It's important we see that all of scripture ultimately speaks to God's redemptive plan in Jesus. Like That is the the overarching focal point. And uh, I'm looking forward to being able to navigate that with you. And we've been talking about last days for several weeks now. And this is an important concept for us to root into, to be prepared, to be aware of what's happening, what's taking place, and how should we respond to it. Um, And so we're going to continue in that today. Um, I'm going to ask you to uh, be patient with me. My seasonal allergies have hit with vengeance and my throat is very dry, okay? So I may talk a little quieter. That's why we have microphones, and I'm thankful for that. But if I pause partway through and I just start chugging water, you can know that that is why, okay? So, and for those of you who have been up here when that's happened before, I do have a pocket full of throat lozenges, so I'm good, okay? I'm good today. Um, on a scale of 1 to 10... How important is faith to you? Would you just think about that a minute? Maybe jot it down. How important is faith to you? Now, think of another answer. On a scale of 1 to 10, what does your relationship with the Lord reveal about how important it is to you? Think about that. Thirdly, on a scale of 1 to 10, how do you think other people would rate you in the importance that faith is in your life? Now, ultimately, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how you rated yourself. This is between you and the Lord. Yet it has a profound impact on the rest of your life, how you engage with your family how you engage with your co-workers, how you engage with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so even if we don't think about this on a daily, regular basis, it has an impact on how we walk as followers of Jesus, on how we function as the church. Now, in Matthew 24, Jesus is talking specifically to his disciples. Say his disciples... And this is important because he's not just he's not talking to unbelievers here. He's not even talking to, as far as we could tell, a large crowd. 
But at the beginning of Matthew 24, we see that he is... Uh, he goes up on the Mount of Olives and he, his disciples come to him privately and he uh, answers their questions. And that's what flows from Matthew 24 and what we often identify as the Olivet Discourse. And throughout this discourse, he, he warns them, this is what you should expect. This is what's coming. Um, this is what you should anticipate. And this is a mix of both soon to happen in the disciples' lives individually as well as future, what the church should expect to take place before Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom on earth. And so what I want to do is I want to start in verse 3 of Matthew 24, and I'm going to read through everything we've covered, and then we're going to focus today specifically on verses 10 through 12 and unpack this a little bit. In verse 3, of Matthew 24 says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Father, open our eyes. Help us to see, the, um, see the, the impact of this text today. Bring clarity to our minds that we would be motivated to act, not just hear. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this first verse in verse 10 then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. To be honest with you, we could spend our entire time just on this verse. And we're going to spend quite a bit of time here because there's a lot that people read in this and they go, what is this talking about? What is this even emphasizing? And what we see here is we see that we should expect this uh, this falling away of sorts, this uh People who uh, appeared or uh, seemed to be following Jesus and they fall away and not only falling away, but betraying one another and hating one another. And Jesus in Matthew 10 actually uh, spoke about this uh, a different time where he said, brother will deliver brother over to death and father, his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all. Why? For my name's sake. And this echoes what Jesus just told to his disciples in verse 9, where he said, you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Not what we want to hear, right? Not what we would desire to uh, hear from Jesus. It's not exactly your typical uh, Sunday encouragement to come and say, hey, you should should expect this intense tribulation to the point that you could be hated and turned over to death by your brothers, your relatives, those closest to you, that this could all take place. And while 
many of us may be more willing to accept or maybe you personally have even experienced what it feels like to be hated or pushed away or turned over or persecuted by family for your faith. The piece of this that many people struggle with is this idea of falling away. What is that? And to fall away here in Matthew 24, the actual Greek word for this is skandalizo. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And there is, in fact, different words in Scripture for falling away and what this looks like. But this stirs in many this idea. And across denominational lines, there are people who even struggle with this because they go, can anyone truly be certain or sure of their salvation? What is Jesus talking about here? And how should we approach this? In considering Jesus' warning to His disciples that there will be those who fall away, Many, everyone say many, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Well, what's interesting about this term for fall away is there's multiple other places in Scripture where we can see this word used. In John 16, 1, right after Jesus has promised the disciples, hey, it's better that I go away from you because if I go away, the helper, speaking of the Holy Spirit, will come to you. And then he follows us up at the beginning of chapter 16. He said, I've said all these things to keep you, speaking to the disciples, to keep you from falling away. Same word as in Matthew 24. In Mark chapter 9, verse 42, this is a passage where Jesus is really emphasizing the importance of ridding ourselves from sin. Where he goes as far to say, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it into the fire. And he's using this as an illustration to, to, to give an example, but this word sin here is the same word for fall away. So literally speaking, if your hand causes you to fall away, remove it. And then in Matthew 26, which we're going to come back to later, Jesus is actually telling his disciples, all of you will fall away because of me this night. Speaking about the disciples and their Denying Jesus and moving away from him when he was arrested. Same word. And so what I want to give you today as we think about this idea of falling away and how do we process this? I I want to give you two possibilities because the reality is, church, this is a really intense theological concept that we need to know how to wrestle with. And we need to know how to navigate. We need to know how to give people an answer if people come to us and say, can I be certain, can I be secure in my faith or not? And so possibility one is just this. One, that this falling away speaks of one who has emotionally experienced what they believe to be salvation, but has never truly believed. And some of you may read that and you go, Matt. How, how can you say such a thing? Well, I, I fear, church, that this is all too common for us. When we emphasize an emotional experience that leads us to faith rather than emphasizing the name of Jesus by which every person is saved, the only name of Jesus, is the only way to salvation. And we see multiple scripture passages that emphasize this possibility. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He goes on to describe these people who they come before the throne of God and they say, God, look at everything I've done in your name. And he says, I never knew you. These would be people that from the outside, from the external perspective, just like the Pharisees, they seem to have everything in order. And yet Jesus said, you're whitewashed tombs that are beautiful on the outside and yet internally have not been transformed. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, it's recorded that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they all are not of us. Whoa. And in Matthew 13, we have the parable of the sower. Where Jesus describes four types of seeds that are scattered and the different results that they yield. And in Matthew 13, verse 20 and 21, it says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and then immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the word, immediately he falls away. The heaviness, the weightiness of this church means, is, is this reality that We can go through all the right motives, but if we have not individually chosen to follow Jesus and to allow Him to be the thing that transforms our lives, then externally we can look really good and internally be nothing but dry bones. And that is not why Jesus came. So as there is this possibility here, possibility number one, that uh, when Jesus speaks that many will fall away, that he's speaking specifically about those who maybe from an outside perspective had the appearance of one who was truly following Jesus, but when it got down to it, they did not believe. The second possibility here is it's possible to truly believe, but Choose not to mature and you incur earthly consequence and judgment upon yourself. Now, as emphasized in other places, this is something we see in Scripture. It's really important that we don't just make arguments that make us feel good, okay? And my desire is to present to you biblically what do we see as the possibilities here. And you need to be able to wrestle with these things and sort this out. I'm not going to stand up here and give you answers specifically other than what Scripture says. Because I don't want you as the church to be established on the grounds of my faith. I want you to be rooted and established in the grounds of the authority of God's Word and who He has revealed Himself to be. That's most important. And in Matthew 26, and then Hebrews 5 and 6, which we're going to talk about specifically. Matthew 26, this is Jesus, again, talking to his disciples. And he says, when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all, everyone say all, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, I love Peter's tenacity. He goes, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. 
And Peter said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. But here's Peter. And man, he is resilient. He's like, no way, Lord. They, they might all, they might all fall away, but not me. I, I won't fall away. I'll die with you before I fall away. And all the disciples are like, yeah, what he said. And as the narrative goes, that very night when Jesus was arrested, the disciples ran. And Peter, just as Jesus foretold, denied even knowing Jesus three times. Now the question you have to wrestle with, being that they fell away and they denied Jesus, does that mean the disciples were not truly followers of Christ until later? No. I don't believe that to be true simply because we see the consistency in the disciples who said, I have chosen to follow Jesus. And yet, in that moment of immaturity, they chose their own selves over the person of Christ. Now, Interestingly enough, right there within the makeup of the twelve disciples, you have both of these examples because the way that the eleven fell away when Jesus was arrested is completely different than the person of Judas who experienced everything and was with them while Jesus was doing ministry and yet betrayed Jesus for petty silver. And Jesus said it would have been better for him if he were not born. Now, Hebrews is kind of a different animal, and I want to encourage you to turn there with me to Hebrews chapter 5. And I want to preface this and say that this section of Hebrews is one of the most challenging sections of Scripture. And most people avoid this because it is just, it makes you sit and really wrestle But one of the things I want to identify here is uh, in specifically Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4 is what many people pull out and wrestle with. Where it says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. The first thing I want you to identify here is the word fallen away there in verse 6 of chapter 6 is a different word for falling away than Jesus uses in Matthew 24. It's a different word, even though English-wise we read those and we think, oh, these are the same entity. They're not. So one of the challenges, one of the importance that we go back and our statement of faith, even as the EFCA identifies that the word of God is inerrant in the original languages that it was written in. And that emphasizes our need for going back to that and and making sure we're understanding this the way it was written. But the other emphasis here and the thing we have to consider is asking the question, who is the letter of Hebrews written to? And throughout the letter of Hebrews, we can make the evident case that the letter of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians. Everyone say Christians. And this is so crucial because if we just take this passage and we remove it out of context, all of a sudden we become wrestling and challenged with this idea of how can, how can we preach a message that God is willing to forgive anyone? How can we uh, uh, 
emphasize these things, and yet this seems to communicate that there's no repentance for the person who falls away. What, how do we navigate this so well? But throughout this letter, Hebrews 3.1, 3.12, 3.14, 4.14, and 6.9, if you read, I encourage you, if you've never read through the whole letter of Hebrews, read through the whole thing. And throughout, he emphasizes, brothers, my uh, brothers whom I love, he says, the, the writer says, we and us, all throughout this letter, emphasizing that he's speaking to the family of God, the church. And the danger here for the, the, the readers in Hebrews is that they were considering resorting back to the old way of thinking. And for them, that meant the Jewish law. They, they were going to go back to the old system because it made sense to them. And the writer of Hebrews is simply trying to communicate and say, hold fast the confession of your faith. Remember what Jesus has done for you. Root into these things. And then right in the middle of this letter, he says, it's impossible for the one who's experienced the goodness, the grace of God, who's experienced all of those things and falls away to return again to repentance. But what is he really concerned about here? If you look at chapter 5, verse 11, it says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. If you jump over to chapter 6, verses starting in verse 9, the writer emphasizes, even after identifying the danger and the peril of falling away from the, what, what God has already done, the writer says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, there's another emphasis on who he's writing to. We feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance. Everyone say assurance. Of hope until the end, so that, get this, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now when I'm wrestling with this, I'm a, I'm a visual type of person, and so uh, searching through scripture, I'm looking for an example, how can we see this lived out practically? <clears throat> what does it look like? And the place I landed in Scripture is Numbers chapter 14. Put your hand up if you have an idea of what happens in Numbers 14. Does anyone know, right off the cuff, what happens in Numbers 14? Okay, this is good. Numbers 13, the spies from Israel are sent into the promised land to spy out the land. And they come back and who knows, do they bring a good report or a bad report back? They actually bring a bad report, right? They bring a bad report saying, look at these, these people are in here. They're so big. We, if we go in there and we fight them, they're going to destroy us. We can't do this. And there were two guys in that mix that brought a, brought, brought a good report back, right? Joshua and Caleb. The only two guys of those spies who went in. Well, Numbers 14 
<clears throat> details what happens next. And I'm just going to paraphrase some of this for you because it's so valuable for us to understand. They actually said in that moment, it would have been better for us to be back in Egypt. Why would God, if He's truly a faithful God, bring us here to die? And in chapter 14, verse 3 and 4, they actually go as far to say, would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Egypt was a place of slavery. Egypt was a place of bondage. Church, how often do we do the same thing? Where stuff is not going the way I think it should go. And so we, in a moment's notice, kind of discard our faith and go, man, it would have been better when I was back here. When things were this way, it was better there. And we don't stop to remember and reflect on the fact that what has God in Christ done in your life from back there to now? Where have you seen Him show up? Where has He taught you maturity and faithfulness? Where has He shown up again and again and again? And in a moment, we discard all of that. We say, oh, it was better back there. They actually go as far where... Moses and Joshua plead with the people, and in verse 10 of 14, they say, Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And so, what does God do in response to this? Well, God actually, at the, at the, in verse 12 of 14, He says, I'm going to strike them with pestilence, and I'm going to disinherit them. They've denied me. They, they've denied all of my power. I'm, I'm going to disinherit them, and I'll build in you... Moses, a a greater nation than they. And Moses pleads with the Lord. He says, don't do that, Lord. Please, don't do that. And so the Lord relents in verse 20. He says, then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live and as all the earth be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. And this is right before they enter the wilderness and wander for 40 years. And every person from 20 years old up at that moment in time, God said, you will die in the wilderness and you will never see the earthly inheritance that I promised to you. Because of your lack of maturity, your unfaithfulness. So what happens then? Moses brings this report back to the people and he tells them what God has just said. Guess what the people's response is? Oh Lord, we've sinned. We've done wrong. We'll go in and take the land now. And Moses says, don't do that. The Lord is not with you. He has already spoken the disciplinary consequences for your actions. Don't do it. They did it anyway. And they were driven out of the land and defeated. Now, why do I come to Numbers in correlation with Matthew 24 and Hebrews? Because the emphasis here is on a people that were still possessed by God. They were God's chosen people. He, he, was, he was angry in the sense of going, I, I, I should just disinherit this nation because of their, their constant betrayal and going after other things. And he doesn't do that. They don't, they don't lose 
being a part of what God had established as his chosen people, what they did lose was earthly blessing and the opportunity to experience that for themselves. Warren Wiersbe says it this way, Believers who doubt God's word and rebel against him do not miss heaven, but they do miss out on the blessings of their inheritance today. And they must suffer the chastening of God. God disciplines his children. How often do we see God as the disciplinary father? Or do we just see him as some pushover that we can sin and sin and sin and sin again and never actually truly experience any consequence for that? What's interesting is in verse 11 of Matthew 24, it identifies that false prophets will arise. They'll lead many people astray. And then in verse 12 of Matthew 24, it says, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Revelation 2.4 identifies this even further, speaking of the church of Ephesus. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And some of you may be saying, Pastor Matt, it's Palm Sunday. How does this have anything to do with Palm Sunday? John 12. When Jesus came into the city, it identifies that a large crowd had come for the feast. Right? The Passover feast. And when they heard Jesus was coming, they all came out with their jackets and palm branches. They laid them out. They cheered, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And yet I ask you, have you ever thought about how many of those people who cheered Jesus on his coming into Jerusalem were also standing there when the crowds yelled, Barabbas, release for us, Barabbas. We want him, not Jesus. You see, when we stop and think about this, we tend to only focus on the reality. Jesus came. He fulfilled the prophecy. He came. He died. He rose again. And yet we don't actually stop and think, how does this have any application in my life? Am I the person who cheers Jesus on when things are going my way, but when things get hard, I say, you know what? I'm just going to do this myself. And I'm going to look to the earthly entities like the prisoner Barabbas. To satisfy what I want to happen. Because clearly, Jesus, you don't know what you're doing. And we do this over and over and over and over again. How many of us who celebrate the coming to faith of the individuals, the transformation of lives, who've witnessed the faithfulness of God to provide, to protect, to bask in His grace, only to become slothful and complacent when life becomes easy or doesn't go the way we want it to How many of us look to another teacher, another God, to fulfill the selfish cravings of our flesh? So church, here is the application question. There's one, and I want you to wrestle with this. How serious are we in our relationship with the Lord? How serious are we really? There are a lot of people who claim to be Christian who aren't actively following Jesus. There are a lot of people who say that they believe but who have not surrendered their lives to Christ. 
There are a lot of people who know the right things to say, but choose to walk in disobedience. May it not be so in your own life that you have used the message of the gospel to check a box for yourself rather than being transformed by the renewing work of God in Christ. May it not be so that you who are sitting here today will fail to enter the rest and blessing offered by the Lord because you have resolved in your own minds that you are content with where you are. Now, when I finished writing this section this week, I just wept because I felt so convicted and so challenged by this. And I went, this cannot be how we end today because this is heavy. And there is indeed hope. And so the question we ask at the beginning, can I ever truly have security of genuine salvation in Christ? And a resounding yes. Everyone say yes. You can in Jesus. And throughout, Gala- or throughout Hebrews, Hebrews 5.9, it says, And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. In Hebrews 9.12, it said, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised internal, eternal inheritance. Ephesians 1, in Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed. Everyone say sealed. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. To all who believe in John 10, He gave the right to become children of God. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. This sealing, this security, this transformation is only available through Christ. John 14, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. How serious are you? How much are you willing to give for the sake of the gospel? How far are you willing to go for the name of Jesus? So, in closing, I'm going to ask the worship team to come. We're going to sing one more song together. But as they do, I want you to consider where you're at. Some of you here need to recommit your lives to following Christ. You've been wandering in the wilderness and you've shoved everything to do with your faith to the side. And you need to choose today to say, I'm going to recommit my life to Jesus And choose to follow after Him. Some of you may need to commit your life to Christ for the very first time. Because you've heard the gospel message, the good news that Jesus died for you, but you've never been drawn to something beyond yourself. Now as we think about this, I want to encourage you in a couple ways. Some of you may just need to respond right where you're at. And during this song, you may just need to spend time in prayer and say, Lord, I have sinned against you and I'm recommitting my life to you. You may feel necessary to come down and kneel here. And maybe you're going, I don't know what this looks like in my life. I don't know what steps I should take next. And if that's you, I want to offer you a really simple solution to that because we as a staff desire to walk with you. In this, we don't want you to do this alone, but many times we can just.
kind of sit here and you may not feel comfortable coming and talking to us and you may want someone to reach out. So I want to challenge you, if that's you, I want you to fill out that connect card and put it in the offering plate at the end of service. If you're not comfortable filling something out, I want you to use this as a resource. You can pull out your phone right now and all this does, it gives you, it gives us your contact info in one of these areas. To say, I'm going to recommit my life to Jesus, but I'm not sure where to begin. Or I, I feel like I need to take the next step in my walk with Christ and be, be baptized. And I'm not sure what that looks like. And I want to encourage you to do this. Think about this. As we approach Resurrection Day, as we think about how serious am I about my relationship with Christ? Will I make the necessary commitments now? To follow Him tomorrow, regardless of what comes. Father, I pray that You would help us to truly recognize and see that You are our living hope. Lord, root us into these truths. Challenge us with this, I pray in Jesus' name.